Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. This week, we watched the iconic 1967 crime drama In the Heat of the Night, directed by Norman Jewison and written by Sterling Siliphant, adapted from the novel by John Ball. Sidney Poitier stars as Virgil Tibbs, a black police detective from Philadelphia who becomes embroiled in a murder investigation in small-town Mississippi. Winning five Oscars, including Best Picture, it's widely regarded as one of the best American films ever made. So last week we covered What's Up, Doc, inspired by the fact that Peter Bogdanovich, the director of that film, had died recently. And similarly, we decided to do this movie, which we've talked about doing before in a like vague, you know, we should do that one someday kind of way, because Sidney Poitier died, I think the day after Peter Bogdanovich, they died really close together. And they were getting talked about together because they were kind of two of these sort of like last remaining connections to old Hollywood, which is something that we talked about on that last episode. And we have done a Sidney Poitier film before. We did A Patch of Blue, which is one of his less well-known movies. But this is like the the peak of his career, really, and kind of the most interesting star text of his, in my opinion. And it's just incredible. Like, if you've not watched this film yet, obviously there will be spoilers in this podcast. It's not a movie where it particularly matters if you know spoilers, even though technically it is a detective who done it. But God, just watch the film. It's a classic for a reason. Every element of this movie is fascinating. I'm looking forward to digging into it. Morgan has recently read um, a book about this period of cinema history, so she's got loads of interesting backstory on it. But just uh, across the board, fascinating film. Yeah, I had seen it once before when I went through um, sort of early in COVID lockdown. I had never seen a Sidney Poitier film. And so I watched a bunch of his because they were on the Criterion channel. And I was like, it's really embarrassing. I've never seen any of these. So I watched several of them. And um, I found it really interesting because a lot of them aren't really successful as movies necessarily. But he is such a fascinating screen presence. And historically, of course, they're really interesting because they're doing something really pivotal in American film culture and culture, period. And then this one is the one that kind of transcends that and is just a great film, but also is completely interconnected with all of those other films he was making, right? So as you said, there's just like so much to talk about with this movie because A, it's just a really good piece of art, but B everything to do with the circumstances surrounding its production historically in terms of what was going on in Hollywood, just like the stories about it being made specifically is like incredibly fascinating. But before we get too deep into that, we have a correction from our What's Up Doc episode. I don't think we've ever read a correction out loud on air before, but... um, (laughs) Just the perils of being right so often. (laughs) I know. I'm sure we've had many errors that we just you know, missed, but a very kind listener wrote in to let us know that we had misidentified the rival academic to Ryan O'Neill's character. So Amber wrote in and says, though Randy Quaid is indeed one of the academics at Larrabee's table in What's Up Doc, he's not the one playing Ryan O'Neill's academic rival. That honor goes to the great Kenneth Mars, who also played Inspector Kemp in Young Frankenstein, which is a movie that I love. And Kenneth Mars is one of my favorite, hey, it's that guy actors. He also voiced King Triton in Disney's Little Mermaid, which I thought was really 
fascinating. And now makes sense in retrospect, because while I definitely could not recognize Kenneth Mars, I am the person who misidentified this guy, by the way, I was like, wow, Randy Quaid was a lot more interesting in his early career than I thought. And the answer is actually, no, he wasn't. (laughs) Well, and you said that and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like I didn't recognize him at all. And then foolishly, foolishly uh, did not look at the Wikipedia page to uh, see. I mean, they kind of look similar, you know. Celavi, apologies for the mistake. You've all been corrected yes. now. <laughs> so that's that. Thank you to Amber for writing in. And let us move on to In the Heat of the Night. So we talked about Sidney Poitier, as I said, in our episode on A Patch of Blue, which is a film from the early-ish 1960s. And he actually signed on to do this movie right after making that film. And I used a couple of quotes from this book, Pictures at a Revolution, which was written by the film journalist and historian Mark Harris when we did that episode about his experience making A Patch of Blue, which he found very frustrating and basically was just like, I'm doing the same thing over and over again, and this whole thing is bullshit. And clearly part of the impetus for him in doing In the Heat of the Night was to try to find something a little bit different. I mean, in 1967, he had three movies out, all of which were really high profile at the time and also are big hits from just his filmography now, which is this movie, To Sir With Love and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, all of which came out in the same year at the same time as like the height of the civil rights movement. So kind of not surprising that he was a big headline grabber at the time. Yeah, I mean, do you want to give a little bit of background on him getting to this point? I mean, we'll again, we'll have covered some of this in that other episode, but it was a year or two ago now, so... Yeah, so just in terms of general backstory, he was born in the Bahamas, he moved to New York as a teenager, and he was a theatre actor kind of in his youth, and had his first significant movie role in 1955. So he'd been acting in movies for well over a decade before this happened, and he was a very prominent actor just in the 60s, like from the start of the 60s. And as Morgan kind of mentioned, there's a reason why he was frustrated with his roles at this juncture, because... Famously, he's kind of the first black star to really break out in white-dominated cinema in the US kind of in this way with like mainstream movies and non-tokenized roles. But at the same time, he was really typecast in this position of being like the perfect black man where it's like his role was to be this really intellectual and morally perfect figure whose job was to be like, oh, actually, you're completely wrong about being racist because I'm a really wonderful person. And naturally, one would be frustrated with that role at the same time as him being this incredibly impactful performer. Like he's this amazing actor and he was doing everything he could with those roles. But when we were watching A Patch of Blue, I was just like, yeah, I can really see the uncomfortable position he was in as like a burgeoning movie star at this point. And this movie just like blows that concept out of the water because it's such an interesting and kind of in some ways morally ambiguous character and just a really thrilling, exciting film just in terms of pure performance and as a crime thriller and also politically. I mean, obviously so many things about him and his career are really fascinating. So The Defiant Ones, which he makes with Tony Curtis, is 1958. And he had had a couple big things before that, but that's like the huge... Yeah. Huge breakout. And then he wins the Oscar for Lilies of the Field in 1963. Lilies of the Field being a movie where he like heroically helps a group of nuns build their church, 
a bunch of people were watching that I saw on Twitter after he died. And I saw a lot of people being like, actually, this movie's like pretty good. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but like, yeah, because I steer clear of that one because I'm like, feel like this probably hasn't aged well. But if it has, maybe I should pop in and check out Lilies of the Field. I think it's probably like not as bad at all as some of the other stuff that he made, but it's another example of like he doesn't get to have a love interest right which he never gets to do um although he does in a patch of blue it's just that they're not allowed to wind up together but one of the things that harris writes about in this book is that hollywood was really in denial about what a huge star he was for a long time and then eventually kind of realizes as he gets a number of successive hits that like people really want to see him and there's a report in the mid-60s about i think it's about cities broadly but this includes data about who's going to the movies and it's like 30 percent of city slash like urban moviegoers are african-american and they're and the studios are like oh my god like we need to exploit this which i think clearly explains the black exploitation shift in the 70s right but like they realize they actually should be trying to capitalize on this as opposed to being like we can have one black movie star one singular black movie star But what's also really clear from reading this book, and like, it's not just from the quotes in the book, like this is it was a known thing about him, but he obviously felt a huge pressure being the one guy, right? And so on the one hand, he was obviously incredibly frustrated by the fact that he kept getting these parts and that and he was knew exactly what the score was and was very smart. And it's not like he was delusional about anything and I think was very frustrated by the fact that a lot of sort of left wing people in the press started to go after him at a certain point because he became kind of an icon of this like bloodless liberal like we should just get all along which was like kind of a new version of something that historically had happened with a lot of earlier black film stars because kind of prior to this you know in very early film like 20s to 50s there were a lot of actresses who came to prominence playing, you know, maidservant roles, which were extremely demeaning and stereotyping, but were a really solid living and you could become a very rich Hollywood figure doing those roles. But then if you read kind of articles from black newspapers at that time, it was just full of people being absolutely disgusted and hating these actors and actresses being like, what the fuck? Like, you know, Step and Fetch it being the most famous example. But, um, you know, this is a slightly st- different situation because times have moved on, but he's still playing a different type of stereotype and still getting that political backlash for very understandable reasons. Yeah. And he was involved in the civil rights movement. He was really good friends with Harry Belafonte, who this sort of feeling seems to be that Belafonte kind of pushed him to be more politically active. And then after the death of Martin Luther King, Poitier's instinct was to be more cautious and Belafonte got really mad at him and they had like a severe fracture in their relationship for a few years. There is a great anecdote about Poitier and Belafonte in like essentially a long distance car chase to Mississippi where they'd collected $70,000 and they were like escaping the KKK and taking this money to a group of activists and they had to like drive down physically with the cash in the car. Yes, At the same time, though, he was getting offers to do more complicated stuff. There was some big production of Othello that I don't remember if it was theater or film or who was going to do it, but he turned turned it down because he didn't want to be basically playing a flawed black guy, right? And I 
completely understand why he made those decisions because he was the only one, right? But then then you're kind of screwed in the other direction, which is that you're left with a career that is sort of repetitious and playing a lot of these similar roles. I mean, it's definitely interesting to me that like in the genesis of this film, one of the initial plans for this movie, which is based on a novel, was to kind of turn it into a franchise, like a Bond franchise. Well, and you can kind of see elements Gabby, of that uh, in this, but yeah, I know Gabby, there's sequels, uh, but like the sequels it were. It is. <laughs> I know. It literally is that. But the sequels were not uh, not as well received. But like the actual material of this film is not the same as like the first Bond film. <laughs> I know, but they made they made bank as far as I know. And like they yeah. basically did like exploitation movies with Mr. Tibbs. Like, yeah, I was looking at the sequels and being like, interesting, didn't know these existed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And one of the points Harris makes is like, <laughs> this is basically the end of him as a movie star. He has this massive year with these three huge hits. And then he kind of knows that he's he's going out and is talking to people on the set of this this movie. And guess who's coming to dinner, I think, about how he wants to be a director. And um, that's what he does. He becomes a director in the 70s and does a lot of like, parody western type movies that are comedies he stars in many of them along with bill cosby which is unfortunate but what are you gonna do and they're totally different i have not seen these films but like they're definitely not they're not a patch of blue let's just say right and um it's really fascinating that like he clearly was he was sort of like the person that hollywood in america needed someone to be for like 20 years and then the culture just really shifted. And what he was doing shifted too. And it's not like he stopped acting. Like he's in Sneakers, for instance, in 1992, which is just one of the most pleasurable films you could possibly watch. But this moment, and which really lasted through the whole of the 60s of him being one of the biggest movie stars in America, like it just goes away really fast, which is pretty interesting. And I think probably was kind of a relief to him. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was really fucking unpleasant to have just microphones shoved in your face every 10 seconds and the questions you're getting answered are so much more painful and tricky and sophisticated than the stupid questions that most people usually ask actors so you know yeah yeah but i think i mean to sort of sum up this part of the conversation reading articles about him and especially this book which like i will put a link to it in the show notes obviously but like i just cannot recommend it highly enough we're obviously going to be talking about the in the heat of the night stuff, but the pitch of the movie, the pitch of the book is that it's looking at the five films that were nominated for Best Picture for this year, which are This, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and amazingly, Dr. Doolittle, which was um, not good. (laughs) The infamous Dr. Doolittle. That is truly, I mean, a great, great topic for a book as well, because that movie is a famous fiasco. You got four good movies and one garbage nonsense film. Well, no, two bad movies, because Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is also not good. But again, fascinating situation, right? Spencer Tracy's literally dying on set. So all of that stuff is really, really interesting. But one of the, again, like, it just was so clear that he both felt this huge responsibility and, like, sort of couldn't get beyond that. And that that probably was the greatest sort of service he could do to America. And it was incredibly sort of confining to him also, right? But he wasn't quite willing to go beyond it. Like, it's just this total sort of, like, Mobius strip of a situation for, like, 15, 20 years. And then he kind of gets to escape it once 
once he's no longer the center of everyone's consciousness. But let's get more into the actual film now. So as you were mentioning, the sort of genesis of how this all comes to be is pretty interesting. As you said, it's based on a book that sounds just awful. Like this book (laughs) sounds so bad. But there are a lot of stories about how like it was getting passed around and like submitted to all of the studios as like, oh, this could could this could be good. Famously, Larry Kramer was working as a reader at Columbia um and recommended it to someone and they passed on it. And Sidney Poitier's agent, who was named Martin Baum, got his hands on it somehow and obviously was like, This is perfect because he was representing the one black movie star in Hollywood at this time. And because all the studios had passed, he brought it to the Marish Company. And like when you watch the movie, the titles, it says like a United Artists and Marish Studios Productions or something. And basically, they were an independent production company that supplied movies to United Artists. So they would make pretty low budget movies that had that already had a big star or a big director attached to them. And then that was how they could get United Artists to agree to do something. So Poitier obviously is the star in question here. And apparently in the novel, Virgil Tibbs is, quote, I'm quoting Mark Harris here, a polite, chatty Pasadena police officer, (laughs) which is not the case. (laughs) And in the book, the mystery is resolved with a Hercule Poirot-esque scene where he just like explains everything for like 20 pages to like a gathered group of people. Uncinematic at the best of times, but in this case, not remotely relevant to the lingering themes of the movie. (laughs) No. And I don't remember when the book was actually published. It must've been, you know, around this time, but it It was two years before. It was a pretty close thing, you know. It had originally been conceived in 1933 and apparently was just, like, very dated in a bad way. A lot of just, like, egregious racism, but also just, like, the conception of race relations in the South was from the 30s and not from the civil rights era. And it was just apparent that this was not Yeah. At the risk of stating the obvious, novelist John Ball was white. The director (laughs) and writer of this movie also both white. Yeah. Although more politically switched on than John Ball seemingly was. Yeah, it was Hollywood in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. So Poitier's agent gets this writer, Sterling Siliphant, to be the writer on the film. Quite a character. I found him one of the most entertaining people in this book. He He had written some features, but he was more known as a TV writer. He had like multiple shows going on at the same time, I think, and would get paid like $10,000 an episode and he would just churn them out. So he was unbelievably rich and, again, just wrote so fast that there's a quote from Sidney Pollack who had directed another, like the previous feature he had written right before this. Pollock said, He used to write on toilet paper when he was in the bathroom. Literally. He was extremely fast and extremely facile. So facile that he could sometimes go off in crazy directions. He could write on a plane, in a waiting room, on napkins, and he didn't know where it came from. He was a very mystical guy, and he thought his own talent was mystical. Which I would just love to know, like, the tone of voice that that quote was related. (laughs) Because I feel like there's a lot of backhanded stuff going on. I mean, it sounds like he had a fascinating life. He was close friends with Bruce Lee and they co-wrote a screenplay together. And he also worked on Thai action movies. I guess when you are that prolific, you're just like, I'll just keep going on with different things. 
Why not? And so he read the book and was just like, this is, this is outrageous. Like, no. And made a lot of really sort of helpful and productive suggestions and changes. For instance, he was like, this detective has to be from the North and not from Pasadena. That seems like a bad idea. And his first draft added a lot of sort of context to the town. He added the famous scene in the greenhouse where a racist guy slaps Sidney Poitier in the face. Poitier slaps him back, which we will obviously talk about more. But then he also, like, he was a white guy. Um, So there's a lot of just, like, racist stuff in the script, too. And there was a great anecdote in the book where Norman Jewison, the director, got the draft and was like, oh, this is the best first draft I've ever gotten. Like, so fantastic. And Silifant's like, oh, I'm so great. Feeling great about myself. And he goes and has a meeting with him about it. And Norman Jewison pulls out his draft. And there's like a paperclip on every single page with his like notes about the stuff that has to be changed. I love this. A master of the compliment sandwich. Yeah. So Silifant wound up working on this thing for months and months and months, which was not at all his M.O., but it wound up obviously helping the script a lot. And um, one of the things that Jewison really focused on was that he wanted the focus of the movie to be on the relationship between Poitier and this white police chief in this town who wanted being played by Rod Steger. And for there to be less focus on just sort of like bigotry or racism in the town, which I think is a problem in the movie that we will talk about in a minute. Though he also said that he didn't remember like talking extensively about racism with him and that it was more about the construction of the mystery. And there's one quote I thought was great from Siliphant was, if the crime story were plotted as the alphabet from A to Z, how much of it could we pull out and play off screen? So they were just trying to like remove as much information as possible to make it engaging for the audience. We kept A and jumped to F, then from F to L. The result of this withholding was to compel the viewer to invest attention in the least detail, which I think is a great description of a lot of what works about the screenplay of this film. As you said, like the mystery is not why you're engaged with it, but it's the like foundation of what is driving the film right in terms of like literal just mechanics of the plot and it's really masterfully done but because there's all this other stuff going on like there's not really time to get into the details and by just giving you like little bits and pieces as you go along you do have the sense that there's some like larger thing happening underneath the surface that these people are trying to figure out and they're just getting little bits and pieces of things, right? And trying to put them together. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, the portrait they create of this town is well-rounded in a way that works extremely well today, which is not the case for a lot of, you know, you watch movies from like 30 or 70 years ago that are about a hot button issue at the time. And the vast majority of the time, it's like, oh, this doesn't feel universal anymore. And while this is obviously now depicting something that's in in the past, just the way that they kind of illustrate the racial dynamics and the class dynamics of this town is just incredibly well drawn. And to a certain extent, they obviously have to kind of tone down stuff because you can't show like certain things on screen. But it's one of those situations where it's like, you don't need to show 
someone being racially brutalized for the audience to be aware of that, right? You feel the tension as soon as Sydney shows up. Like the way the film begins is there's kind of a prologue section where we are just experiencing the town through the eyes of this beat cop who's kind of driving around on his patrol and finds a body. And that's the impetus for the classic crime drama, you know, almost like a TV episode, because of course, Siliphant was a very prolific TV mystery writer. And only once this body has been found and they start looking for suspects, that's when Sidney Poitier's character shows up because they're looking at the train station and they find this black guy. What's he doing at the train station? Why is he wearing a suit? So the immediate solution is for the local police department in this small, segregated, very racist Mississippi town to arrest him without any kind of questioning and bring him into the station. So you immediately kind of feel that tension without it needing to be an R-rated movie, if you see what I mean. I do, although I don't completely agree agree with you i mean i agree with your micro analysis but maybe not your macro analysis if you see what i mean (laughs) i mean i'm not saying it's not also sanitized yeah and i love this movie and i think it's a great film i think the biggest weakness of the movie is absolutely the limitations of hollywood at the time right to me this is kind of the apotheosis of the old hollywood system Though in many ways it's not really reflective of that in that it was made on like a shoestring budget and in a way kind of technically an independent film. And obviously it's all about like race issues, which certainly like old, old Hollywood, it was not what they were interested in. But it's all about the star and the image of the star in a way that we'll talk about more, but is the ultimate and like all of what Hollywood does. And this sort of way it uses genre storytelling also feels totally like this is what Hollywood does to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you gently feed an issue to the audience by disguising it as something else. Yeah. The problem is that because it is a Hollywood film, you have some stuff being made independently in the 60s, but it's very small and there's not really access to distribution in the way that you get in a couple of decades. So this is really the only option, right? Unless it's a foreign film that's being imported. And this just does not come remotely close to the reality of what the South was like at this period, right? And there are scenes of like real tension and fear with Poitier's character that are really effective. There are a couple of scenes where groups of white men are threatening him that are genuinely like, obviously you know he's not going to die because he's Sidney Poitier and like the, <laughs> he's the star of the movie. But it still feels really... I mean, it's very stressful. It's frightening, yeah. And I think the huge strength of the movie is what they were focusing on, which is the little interpersonal interactions, right? So like the relationship between... The police chief and Poitiers character is really nuanced and interesting. And the class stuff you were mentioning is like fascinating as it manifests in that relationship. But in a way, the movie is kind of a fantasy, right? Because if this really happened, that guy would be dead. Like he would 100% be dead. There's that element, which is also true. There's also the James Bond element because he's like so supernaturally handsome compared to everyone, which kind of makes sense because like this is a town of people who are living in poverty. 
but he's also like got this beautiful suitcase and his suit is always perfectly pressed. Like everyone else is wilting in the boiling heat and his suit is like perfect. And like so many great detective characters, one of the main character traits he has is that he is supernaturally skilled. So he's this amazing kind of forensic scientist and he's constantly showing people up around him. And not to a degree where you're like, oh, this is like unrealistic and absurd. Like you completely accept that within the limits of the genre. But that's definitely the framework they're working in. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple logical lapses early in the movie, including that he's like a homicide detective and is like performing an autopsy. And I was like, I don't know how it worked in the 60s, but I'm pretty sure that's a separate job, which is fine. I fully accepted this because the whole point is that he is an expert and he's witnessed many autopsies. And like when he goes to a crime scene, presumably he knows and he wants to be a well-rounded individual in his profession. And also the stuff he's doing, I think kind of the point of that is like when he's first brought in to examine that body, the local medical examiner we have to assume he's either the local doctor who is probably someone who qualified from medical school in like 1935 or he's literally a coroner which means he may not have that much medical education he's clearly incompetent and then you know this guy shows up and like he's doing stuff which maybe to like a big city medical examiner would seem very basic but to the people in this town and to us the audience we're like wow he understands what lividity is i think you are doing the thing that you do where you make lots of mental justifications for something that is happening in a movie that is not supported by the text. (laughs) Uh, I think that's the subtext here and that's how I'm going with it. (laughs) I think it's an incredible scene. Uh, So I'm not like mad it's in the movie, but I think there's something like the other thing is like, He's visiting his mother and he's going back home and he just happened to take this train that's going to put him in this fucking nightmare town. I mean, it's this very contrived scenario where kind of the film is structured around, there's got to be this push-pull between the two main characters where obviously Mr. Tibbs does not want to be in this town. Like there's literally no reason for him to want to be here. He's not portrayed as someone who is so unbelievably passionate about justice that he's willing to literally sacrifice his life to solve this murder, which would be like a terrible role. Instead, he's a somewhat cynical figure. Like he's experienced, he's very intelligent, he understands human nature. And he also is like, get me the fuck out of this town. But the first thing that keeps him in is that because he's initially arrested, he eventually manages to persuade the political police chief that he is in fact also a cop. He like shows him his badge. So the police chief calls his boss back in Philadelphia. And then his boss is like, oh, you should stay in this town to solve this crime for them. And it's like, well, there's absolutely no way that would actually happen. Of course, like it's a completely contrived scenario, but by movie logic, we accept that. And then for the rest of the film, there's like several situations where the local police force are so racist, they push him to want to leave or are actively trying to get him to leave. And he always comes back for one reason or another, whether that's because he feels that this crime needs to be brought to justice or out of his own pride and arrogance of wanting to prove himself and also prove the local police wrong. It's not even that the local police are being that racist and that that's what's driving him to leave. I think, in fact, that these like supporting police characters are shockingly non-racist in this movie. It's that they are being incompetent. Yes, they're very incompetent. And so they keep arresting the wrong person. And he's like, this is fucking ridiculous. I love that, like, they essentially, in their series of incorrect arrests, they work their way up what is clearly their internal view of, like, the social food chain. 
So they're like, the first person we arrest without any kind of proof is the black guy. Then they arrest like a white petty criminal. Don't want to spoil how many people they arrest, but it's like, at none of those points are they really thinking about this. But obviously, like we said, the kind of anchor point is this relationship. Incidentally, an intriguing factoid about these two lead actors. Rod Steger at this point was literally just the same age as Sidney Poitier. He is two years older. And because of their appearances and performances, he is very clearly kind of being characterised as someone who is, you know, a generation older. He's the sort of old, out-of-shape chief of police, and then he's got all these junior officers in the department. And Rod Steger, who was a method actor, was like very immersed in that performance and is giving this amazing kind of physicality to that character where he's sort of very confident and making use of his size. And there's a couple of scenes where he gets violent with people to make a point, but he's also just you know, slumping and it's kind of a stereotypical type of police character, but it's also very well drawn. And then Sidney Poitier also has this incredible self-contained sort of physicality. So you've got these two extremely different physical types, both in terms of their appearance and the way they're kind of moving around the screen. And even just the way that the film is shooting Poitier's hands, like there are several scenes where they use his hands as like a way of experiencing the investigation because we're both seeing things through his eyes, you know, things that he's spotting. So we're also clued into what's happening in the crime. And then also like in the, you know, the medical examination scene, we're seeing like how delicate and like well manicured his hands are. (laughs) Just very different from all the other people around him. Well, and that examination scene also, I think, is one of the most interesting scenes in the movie from a cinematography perspective because it's there's a really long shot that's like close up of his hands moving along this white man's corpse. And like, he's obviously like touching this man's body very extensively to try to do this autopsy. And you just don't get that visual of like a black person touching a white person's body in that way. Obviously this guy's dead, but the fact that the close up is sustained for that long is obviously intentional. And I just thought that was really, yeah interesting. I mean, the stuff about the production in this book is also fascinating. So there's stuff about the acting, but before we get, I get to that, I wanted to mention the cinematography because we were just mentioning that. This movie is gorgeous. One of the most interesting things in this book that I just didn't really know, not that I knew all of the like anecdotes or whatever about making this movie, but like in a, or any of the movies, but like in a big picture sense, one of the biggest takeaway I think for me was the shift from black and white to color for serious movies that is happening literally like exactly this year with this Bonnie and Clyde and the Graduate. And um, the like the, he tells a lot of stories about the cinematographer on Bonnie and Clyde, who's like an old school cinematographer and is like desperately trying to achieve what they want him to do on Bonnie and Clyde and obviously succeeds because that movie looks great. But like they at one point fired him because it was so, like, the whole thing was so impossible. And then they got someone else and they were like, oh my god, this is so much worse. Like, we now understand how hard he was working to, like, try to make this work. And I think there were issues on The Graduate, too. Like, people couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that color could be used for serious films. Yeah. I mean, just for, like, listeners who are maybe not as well versed, like, color movies have been around for decades at this point. It was just, like, a genre thing. Well, so black and white was used for serious movies and color was used for comedies. (laughs) And it was technicolor or like a technicolor type of 
aesthetic and very, very bright, like lit to high heaven. There were no shadows anywhere. And those are your two options. But because color photography was becoming more and more sort of accessible, that was the direction that everything was going. And I don't know the exact, I'm sure he talks about this in the book, the exact timeline of like when color hits TV. But um, it was clear that movies needed to start sort of progressing in that way. I mean, color was basically happening on TV now. And we know that because 1967 also like when Star Trek's kicking in and famously that's super colorful. So you can get like basically sell TVs by being like, look at how brightly colored these alien planets are. Yeah. So unlike the people on Bonnie and Clyde, where it's this like fight, Haskell Wexler, who is a legendary cinematographer who shot in the heat of the night was like, yes, this is my chance. Like He was so excited to do this. He had previously worked with Mike Nichols, who directed The Graduate, on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And on that, they did use black and white partially to mask the fact that they needed to use a lot of makeup on Elizabeth Taylor because she was way too young for the part in that movie. But um, this is obviously shot in color. And he was really excited about doing it in a sort of darker and more muted way he had never shot a film in color before and was just thrilled to use it do it in a more naturalistic style and it was inspired by like french new wave films documentary stuff the zep Ruder film is referenced which is just like surreal but obviously makes sense because that was a visual image that like was everywhere at this time and the most notable thing is that he actually understood unlike basically everybody at the time and indeed since that uh, white and black actors should not be lit the same way. I'm now quoting from Mark Harris. So the low light he used throughout in the heat of the night was designed in part to make his star's facial features completely clear. Poitier had often been the victim of thoughtless overlighting designed for white actors that added glare to his face and rendered his expressions indistinct. But here Wexler and Jewison made sure that every unspoken thought that played across his lips and eyes would read on camera and be visible to moviegoers. Having read this, I was particularly paying attention this time. I was thinking about that while I was watching the movie, because like from the very first shots of the movie, it has this incredible introductory sequence, as I said. The film looks beautiful, like the color palette is gorgeous. The lighting is very dramatic without being stylized. And also, obviously, you can see the faces of the black and white actors equally, which continues to be a problem. Like it's far more publicly discussed now, obviously. And also there's far more black filmmakers working at this juncture, but especially on TV, where there was maybe not a lot of thought going into lighting, you'll often see TV shows where darker skinned actors are not getting their due for very obvious technical reasons. Yeah, there's a major film out last year where this was like a problem, I think. I don't want to say what it is because that's just mean. But like, if this continues to be a huge issue. And I actually think kind of interestingly in this movie that like the white people don't look great. (laughs) Which is partly, as you said, that they're like middle-aged. And and, like sweaty. Not wearing good outfits. Well preserved. Rod Steiger put on weight for this. They definitely, especially in wider shots, I think sometimes look not washed out exactly, but like it, the lighting is not super flattering to them. And every time Sidney Poitier is on the screen, you're just like this luminous man. Like, <laughs> it's so funny. And it's just so refreshing. Like, that's just not, still not necessarily what you're going to get. And at the time was really unusual and must have been 
I mean, when he saw the movie, I imagine that was kind of a nice thing to be like, oh, someone's done it finally. But um, the stuff about the actors when they were making the movie is also pretty fascinating because so Steiger was this like very serious method actor. He had he had some big role in like the 40s or something and they had been making a lot of movies. He was in in a big Marlon Bronto gangster movie. Yeah. He'd been making a lot of movies in Europe because he just couldn't get work and then had a, a sort of come back with this movie the pawnbroker a few years before this which was about the holocaust but there's also a very prominent black character in that i believe and that movie is partially famous because there is nudity in it i guess it is in the camps i think there may be a flashback situation again i haven't seen this movie but um basically the director was like i'm not cutting the nudity and the production code board can deal with it and they granted an exemption to it because the movie was like of such high quality which is one of the things that meant that the production code was on its way out was when they started granting movies exemptions because they were just so good that it's okay if there's stuff in it that we would normally not allow and then he still wasn't getting much work and he winds up getting this part and um they're on set together and Poitier is initially kind of shocked and a little bit unsettled by him because he's just so unbelievably intense and committed and his method. So he writes, I think in his autobiography later, that Steiger's approach to his work fascinated me. Working or not, he would remain completely immersed in the character of that Southern sheriff. I was astonished at the intensity of his involvement. Throughout the making of the film, I sensed that I was on the threshold of discovering what acting really is. And there's another story about the two of them and Norman Jewison sitting in a car for hours during a storm one night before they shoot this big scene late in the movie where the two men are in Rod Steiger's house having this like heart to heart moment um, and sort of hashing out the dialogue and what the motivations for the characters would be. And Poitier is criticizing himself for pretending, indicating giving the appearance of experiencing certain emotions, but never ever really getting down to where real life and fine art mirror each other. So he clearly was having like a very profound experience making this. And I think Steiger too must have been like, I'm getting a really big part. Like I have to just totally go for it because that was not the norm. It also seems to me like maybe in recent years, although he'd had these really prominent high profile jobs Perhaps it wasn't a situation where he was getting to have these in-depth artistic conversations with his collaborators where people were taking him really seriously because he was kind of getting pigeonholed and they were seeing him more as a star than as an artist. Yeah, I mean, Harry says that this was like by far the most engaged he'd been in years in what he was doing because he had just gotten really bored, which completely makes sense because he'd been doing the same shit over and over again, right? I mean, he he goes off to England to do To Stir With Love because it's like short and like an easy paycheck and it's exactly the same type of thing. I've never seen that movie. I don't think he specifically says anything like bad about it, but it's just kind of like more of this, you know, I'm sure it's completely like, muscle memory at that point right whereas this he's kind of like okay i have a real character to play and there's this guy he was like afraid he was going to get acted off the screen by rod steiger which he doesn't (laughs) needless to say (laughs) but norman norman jewison had to be like it's gonna be fine like you know but he clearly was like oh i gotta up my game and the two of them i think really like inspired and fed off of each other which is obviously what you want out of a collaborator, right? And they were completely different, both as screen presences and as actors in terms of like their approach. So 
I just found it really interesting to read about. And I think also that part of what makes Poitiers so good in this movie, getting back to like the star thing, right? Is like, so he's been playing all these perfect men, right? Like he's just perfect and selfless and just the ideal for all of these white people to learn something from. And that still happens a little bit in this movie, right? Because Rod Steiger, by the end, like his character has learned something He's learned from Sidney Poitier. learned a lesson. <laughs> yep. But unlike in most of these other films he starred in, he actually gets to have a character flaw, which is that he's proud, right? He's really proud and he doesn't he want to let this go. He knows that he's better than everyone around him. I mean, yes. I, I loved the characterization in this because we're all very familiar with the detective genre. I find this particularly interesting in the context of Columbo because it's a somewhat similar type of detective character as Columbo and Columbo premiered, the pilot episode was made one year after this. So it's very much kind of in the public consciousness at this point, but they're both very kind of social focused detectives. So you immediately know from like the very first scenes that Virgil Tebbs is a very confident and be willing to let people hang themselves with their own rope, which is like Columbo's MO, because when he gets arrested by this small town cop, he waits for the other guy to find out that he's a police officer so he can like really hammer home the fact that they've fucked up rather than like trying to head things off at the pass. But although he does have this really amazing forensic scene early on, most of the investigation is told through interrogations, which is of course the most dramatic way to tell any crime story. But the way he works is it's not really one of these things like Sherlock Holmes or whatever, where it's all about kind of facts and outwitting people. It's all about him essentially code switching into the correct roles to talk to these people. So he's in a completely alien environment where pretty much everyone is hostile to him. But you immediately see the reason why he's so confident here is just because he is incredibly good at his job. Quite early on when the local cops arrest this petty criminal for the crime because they just like assume he must be the guilty guy. Obviously, like every other person in the town, this criminal is racist and initially sees Virgil Tibbs as the enemy. But Virgil very quickly gets him on his side by kind of commiserating with him and like talking to him on his own level and charms this guy into informing for him. And then the other really big interrogation scene is kind of later towards the end. And it's the famous slap scene, which is with this character named Endicott, who's the sort of local rich guy and it begins with this amazing lead-in sequence where by this point we're very familiar with the town and there's a fantastic supporting cast of local figures but they've only really mentioned Endicott like in passing and as we travel by car to his house there's this incredibly blatant slavery imagery which is both slavery imagery and like completely accurate to 1960s America where they go through these cotton fields and there are all these black farm workers working in the fields like physically picking cotton by hand and then they drive up to the house and it is very clearly a plantation owner's house like nothing has changed everyone recognizes what that means the door is answered by an elderly black servant and then we meet Endicott who's this kind of classic southern gentleman figure he's like an elderly white man who is far more polite to Virgil Tibbs than anyone else we've encountered so far but the politeness is really obviously a veneer but the great thing about that first introduction is there's this interplay where Endicott being a kindly host offers them a drink and 
the police chief played by Rod Steiger does the normal thing of being like, no, I don't need a drink. We're going to be here for like three minutes. And Virgil Tibbs is like, I would like a drink. Specifically, I'd like a soft, cool, sweet drink. <laughs> so he's like, already. <laughs> so he's putting Endicott on the back foot, shifting the balance of power. So it's immediately kind of unnerving to Endicott. First of all, for like anyone to be like, I'm going to specify what drink I want when we're total strangers and this is a police questioning. But also like a black man has walked into your house and asked for that. They were visiting him like in his greenhouse and Virgil then sort of engages him in conversation about his flowers and sort of like impresses him by knowing this flower knowledge. And Endicott is clearly fascinated by this in a very condescending manner, which is the intention of this scene. And then the scene just ends really abruptly because the only reason Virgil is there is because he wants a piece of physical evidence that he knows he'll be able to find in the greenhouse and then immediately manages to conclude that conversation. And it's just this like great kind of social power play that works so smoothly. And it kind of plays on that trope of it being like really satisfying to see someone upend someone's expectations. But like the character himself is like playing with that trope in the story. Yeah, and he slaps him in the face. And then he slaps him in the face. It ends with this violent confrontation where Endicott slaps him and then he immediately slaps him back, which is one of the most iconic scenes in the movie. And I mean, that part itself is just very effective. And then the conclusion of that scene was also really impressive to me because once Virgil and the police chief leave, we get this shot lingering on Endicott and he's tearful and he's not apologetically tearful he's crying because he knows that he's lost even though he technically still is like the most powerful person in this town he's really rich and he's employing all these people and is able to enact racism on this its entire community he is just completely wounded by this like one 10 second moment of being slapped by a black man and because his servant witnessed this obviously this will immediately become gossip among everyone and everyone will know about this but it's like it just shows kind of the the fragility of his point because even though he has all of the material wealth and all of the political power and is able to be a complete sadist as soon as like any part of that is damaged it's like his life is ruined and he's brought to tears and you kind of see that throughout the different economic echelons of the people in this town because when they're interacting with the more working class people you see that like the thing that's really just absolutely enraging them is the fact that Virgil is really competent and smart and is getting paid more. Right at the very beginning of the film, part of the first confrontation with the police is he says down to the cent what his weekly paycheck is. And it's clearly like way more than anyone in this police department is paid. And it's just this immediate moment of friction that he is intentionally pressuring because he wants to rub it in their face that he's better. Yeah, and to me, the most interesting class stuff in the film is the relationship between Virgil and the police chief, whose name is Gillespie. Because when he first gets brought in, this guy is immediately sort of buying that, like, he murdered this guy, which makes absolutely no sense. I mean... It's just, just, it's just stupid of them, right? And we obviously quickly find out that that's not the case. And then he's really resentful about his his high pay, as you just described. And he clearly wants to figure it out himself so that he can show up Sidney Poitier. But there's also this element of, like, not wanting their office and him, his own sort of person to seem 
pathetic. Yeah. I mean, he's he's ashamed and he's afraid of being right? more ashamed. Yeah, because even though he looks down on Virgil because he's black, he's also from the North. And the sort of like North-South thing is big, right? And not just that he's from the North, he's from a big city in the North, he's from Philadelphia. And they're in this like backwoods town. And he gets a phone call from Virgil's boss being like, oh, we'll like lend you our best homicide officer to deal with this. And he has to be like, yes, sir. (laughs) Right. And he's like, oh, this this guy's like a fancy homicide expert. And they're just nobodies, right? And then all of that is compounded by resentment that it's a black guy. But there's a moment where there's like a swinging gate in their office and it like it sticks because it's just creaky and old. And Virgil's coming out and tries to open it. And he immediately is like, no, 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 let me open it. Because you have to sort of like pick it up in an awkward way and sort of like push it out because it doesn't work. And as soon as Virgil's kind of out of the room, he like berates one of the underlings for not having fixed it when he supposedly asked, you know, however long ago. And you just see the shame so clearly at the like decaying office, like his air conditioner doesn't work and like all of this shit. And that's the sort of stuff that I found incredibly successful in the screenplay because it doesn't necessarily fit to the immediate stereotype, right? But it is so real. Yeah. And it is also like, I found it kind of amusing to see all these descriptions, like both at the time and also kind of now as well, of this being a film about like, all a black man and a white man from very different walks of life come together to like work together. And it's like, they don't, I mean, yeah, the structure is Gillespie eventually accepts Virgil's help. And toward the end of the film, like he really respects him, but it's not really as positive as that that description entails and also like all of the supporting police i feel like we haven't mentioned them enough part of the reason why gillespie would obviously be very uh, ashamed of his own department is the most prominent other cop in this group we've not mentioned yet is sam wood played by warren oates who was a very prolific character actor in a lot of westerns and his performance is a lot more broad than the leads in this, which is completely fine yes. because he is playing the kind of idiot cop role. You know, yeah, he yeah. is the viewpoint character we see at the beginning where we see him on his car patrol around the town, which involves him ogling a naked woman through the window. <laughs> this man is just not remotely competent in any way. But like, I think that's a great little performance. And we also have these sort of like secondary police officers and the local small town mayor, which I found to be a, a wonderful detail. He's played by uh, another character actor, more of a TV actor named William Shallert. And this is a town where the mayor operates his political office out of his small business office, which is right next to like a big tractor garage. And you get such a good portrait of the way this town functions because the main desire here is to wrap up this murder so they can continue an ongoing deal to build a factory in the town and hopefully drag a lot more people up out of poverty but yeah that's sort of like there's a lot of background going on to the reason why Gillespie is the way he is and I think his characterization kind of strikes a good balance between he's not a very good cop he's clearly part of the problem here is literally that he's lazy like he is not willing to rock the boat enough to do a proper investigation but he is markedly more socially savvy than the other people in his department who are just completely useless like you do see the way he kind of functions within the ecosystem of the town. When he's confronting the people who are far more racist, like the just out and out villains, 
you see that he's like, he's disgusted with him. He wants the violence to end. He's not anti-racist at all. And he also is kind of like, how can I resolve this conflict in a way that doesn't mean that every single person in the town dissolves into a race war where they all shoot each other? Because there's definitely the undertone of like, that could happen. I don't even know if it's that he's lazy. Although he's definitely not like a great cop. Well, he's just so keen to wrap it up because he wants this case to just be like over. Exactly. That's It's more that I think that it's that he's just like, oh, I don't want to work. He just desperately wants it to be done and for him to have found the answer so that he can be like, I found it. See, I can do it too. <laughs> just like amazing little kind of allegorical piece of white privilege thinking there. <laughs> yeah. Like he clearly isn't stupid. But you don't see him do anything particularly competent either. Whereas, like, all the other cops are just full. They're just, like, slipping over idiots. banana peels, you know. And yeah. then Cindy Poitier will be, like, making some extremely smart social observation in the background. <laughs> or, yeah. like, picking up on some clue everyone else has missed. And then manipulating everyone Columbo style into offering up the correct answer. Yeah. Speaking of the town, I think we should say a little bit more about the actual production. Yes. Fascinating backstory. Yeah. So this, again, is happening in, you know, 66, I guess they would have shot it. And Sidney Poitier was like, I will not go below the Mason-Dixon line, which is the, you know, north-south divide for our non-American listeners. Like, it's not fucking happening. I do not want to get murdered. So they had to find a town that would look like the South, but was not the South. So they found Sparta, Illinois, that was very close to the Mason-Dixon line. And they had so little money, this detail really stuck with me, that they literally changed the name of the town from whatever it was in the original script to Sparta. Because they were like, well, then we don't have to change the name of the signs in the town. Which is also really funny, because Sparta is such a good name. (laughs) I know, it's definitely, I think it was Wells initially, Sparta's definitely better. Yeah, Sparta's definitely better. And amazingly... This was shot in the winter. So my mind was blown by this detail because like freezing. I think also obviously they make it look really hot. There's this detail of like characters are perpetually drinking glass bottles of soda throughout this movie. Like no one is like, give me a glass of water. They're like, give me like a Coke or a Dr. Pepper. It looks horrible. I'm sure they all had no teeth, but like they're so sweaty. And the fact that the title of the movie is In the Heat of the Night, I think really goes a long way. <laughs> well, it looks hot. It like, does it look just hot. looks really because they sprayed everyone with sweat and in reality it was literally freezing yeah so the younger actors this is a quote from the book had to pretend they were sweating through a humid summer evening in the deep south but in reality the nights in sparta were so cold that they had to keep ice chips in their mouths in order to prevent their breath from showing up on camera spitting them out before each take I love this detail. I was like, what an innovative approach. And I'm sure one that has been used on specifically many a film set where comfort and safety are rarely a priority. (laughs) Yep. And again, it's made on a shoestring. Extras were only paid a dollar and 50 cents per day. And Poitier and Steiger did not have, uh, we're not living in the lap of luxury as the stars of this film. They got space heaters in their trailers. And that was the beginning and end of their, you know, luxury accommodations. And they did for a few days go to Dyersburg, Tennessee to shoot the plantation scenes because that was the one thing that like just didn't exist in Illinois for obvious reasons. And they went with a skeleton crew and had to stay in a Holiday Inn because it was the only place that had integrated housing because it was a national chain. And they were only there for a few days because it was 
bad. The locals were actively hostile and threatening, and Poitiers was sleeping with a gun under his pillow. And of course, the local police would not provide any protection to the production, so the Teamsters had to do it. And like they had planned a very short stay and wound up leaving earlier than they had planned because they were just like, this is not gonna work. So, yeah, I'm glad that no one got hurt making this film. But I think just reading about it, you really get the sense of just like the nerves of everybody and Poitiers in particular. And obviously he was so famous that there's a, you know, bullseye on his back. But I also think those stories highlight the failings of the film a little bit, right? Because yeah, it's like, a there's, bit easier. It just doesn't depict like the level of yeah. terror and direct violence at play. Yeah. And again, like he's in a unique position because he's Sidney Poitier, but this movie was by and large extremely well received. But the like main criticism was that was this criticism that this wasn't brutal enough. And um, there is a quote in the book from the critic Ethan Morden who says, Jewison and Siliphant are running on the premise that movies can correct the world by describing it incorrectly, which I think is kind of a perfectly damning quote. And again, I say, like, I think this movie is really great, but I think it's just like a fair criticism. And then Wilfred Sheed wrote in Esquire, if that were all Mississippi amounted to, it wouldn't take much courage to march down there. One Poitiers per town would soon bring the rascals to their senses. Our people will work this thing out someday. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Which was Yeah, like, maybe it's like oh. just because I was watching this film through my historical fiction goggles because... You know, you and I both watch so many movies from the early 20th century. I still find this, like, extremely effective. Like, I just feel like it's a really good portrait of, like, the town and the racial dynamics and stuff. But, like, I just kind of don't expect it to be as realistic as a movie that came out now. Because, like, if I saw a film that came out now that was depicting the modern era and was just, like, a black and a white cop in, like, a similar contemporary landscape, I'd be like, um... (laughs) Well, I think it's really interesting, right? Because... Like, the Esquire review, at least, was definitely contemporary, right? And so that's someone at the time being like, I call bullshit on this. And famously, James Baldwin absolutely fucking hated this movie, although I did not read his very long piece on it. I want to read that. There's just, there are only so many hours of the day. I was reading an entire book, so... I was actually quite curious. I I went on newspapers.com and looked to see if I could find any contemporary reviews from Mississippi... And I couldn't. And I was like, yeah. was this simply uh, not not screened and reviewed in Mississippi at the time of release? Um, it only began to be covered during actual Oscar coverage a few months later, where it was like included in ensemble pieces with other films. Yeah. So like, I think we can sometimes think that like, these conversations weren't happening in the past, which they obviously were. On the other hand, this was a really groundbreaking movie, right? Like the hoots and hollers in movie theaters when Sidney Poitier slaps that white guy. I mean, Poitier and Steiger would like go sneak into theaters and like sit in the back and just like <laughs> watch oh because my they were just having such a great time. Amazing. And, you know, the famous anecdote about this is that the black audiences would just be like howling and like delighted by this. And the white audiences were like, <gasps> you know, like what a dramatic moment. And so it clearly was really meaningful it just also wasn't completely truthful right which of course no art is but i think it can be both those things at once i mean this definitely isn't a direct comparison i would make because 
they were made with very different intentions in mind but it does make me think a bit of Casablanca which still feels extremely politically smart and is an incredible drama and is really insightful but obviously it's not like a realistic portrayal of Nazis you know yes and I think just again even though Steyer's character is like has learned a lesson by the end the way that all unfolds is so much less condescending in this movie than it is in a lot of the other Sidney Poitier films. Yeah. And you also definitely, I mean, although like tonally you come away with like the narrative is that they've come to an understanding and that Gillespie has kind of grown as a person somewhat. If you go into the sort of Gavia fanfic brain for a moment, (laughs) I definitely don't view this as a narrative where that character is really going to have improved very much as a person running his police force. Like, I don't think it was like that much of a ground shaking moment for him. And it will have made very little impact whatsoever on the town. And I think the main impact may actually just be that everyone in the plantation now knows that Endicott was slapped in the face. Because (laughs) most people who came into contact with this guy, like either it's going to be like a fun anecdote, like you can't shake someone's racism with that sort of, small experience and the most that happens is someone's like oh there was like this one really exciting exception to my preconceived racist ideas you know yeah i mean the only real problem with the end is that they have this moment where they give each other a big smile as poitier is getting on the train i was like if you just stopped this like three (laughs) seconds earlier we really wouldn't be having this like poitier smiling because he's like i can't wait to go back to philadelphia and like go to a bar (laughs) right but even if the movie is sort of flawed in its depiction of this place, it gets so much closer than anything else was at that time that it clearly was electrifying to people. And this is, again, part of why I feel like it's just like the apotheosis of the Hollywood system, particularly because the Hollywood system then explodes basically as this movie is happening, right? Because The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde are the kickoff point for the future, right? And this movie is kind of like the in-between place where it's obviously forward-looking in certain ways, both politically and aesthetically, but it's conservative in other ways. Yeah. And it's doing the star thing, The films that are like of the 70s, it's like they are far more edgy in different ways and also the amount of adult material you are permitted to put in a movie just skyrockets over the next like three to four years well because the code finally dies (laughs) right and this one best picture at the oscars and was seen as i mean it nobody knows what the numbers are it could have won by one vote so like it's foolish to take anything as like a, a particularly meaningful statement but it is kind of appropriate that it wins because Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Dr. Doolittle are, like, really old school. And then The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde are, like, scarily new, right? And this one is kind of in between. And it is sort of the fulcrum point between those two eras of Hollywood cinema. And in the writing about, like, the new Hollywood at the time, this was kind of, like, by critics who were like, oh my god, it's, it's, it's coming. This was kind of grouped in with the, like, new stuff. Like, obviously, no one had gotten together being like, we're going to make a new Hollywood, right? Like, that's not how anything works. But I don't think it quite fits. But it also, again, feels kind of different from anything that had been done before. So it's in this interesting kind of middle ground. And the fact that it is completely the culmination of Poitier's career. And as I said at the beginning, then he just kind of 
his career then totally collapses and changes. Not that he vanishes, but like his big period is pre-New Hollywood, right? Because what he was doing and what he kind of represented in the culture is not what they want. I mean, just in terms of the Oscar stuff, before we wrap up, I just realized we forgot to talk about the music. I was like, I can't believe Quincy Jones wasn't nominated for an Oscar for a score, because like the score to this movie is like really incredible. And I was kind of looking at the nominees this year, and one of them is actually another Quincy Jones score, which is intriguing. He, he did two big movies in this year. The others are like fucking Dr. Doolittle. The one that won was Thoroughly Modern Millie, which is a musical, so not shocking. But like Quincy Jones did the music for In Cold Blood. And uh, Truman Capote at the time wanted Quincy Jones to be removed because he did not want a black composer working on the film because he was like, this is a film about white people. And the director literally was like, fuck you. <laughs> So it's like a very unflattering portrait of Truman Capote's opinions there. Perhaps not enormously surprising, but I was like, gross. This score, you have Ray Charles singing the theme song, like it has a full theme song. It's kind of got like gospel things, got like funk going on, wonderful music. But the thing that like really cracked me up when I was looking into this score is the fact that like, while we are obviously very aware that Quincy Jones is the composer for the whole thing, I assumed that they had used contemporary country songs because there's several scenes where there's country music like playing in the background of a car or in a diner. And every time one of these songs came on while I was watching the movie, I would like actually like start laughing because they are just like the worst, corniest country songs. And I was like, God, this was like a grim period. Because of course, like through any period, you've got your classic songs and then you've got like the horrible dross that plays on the radio. And then when I looked up the soundtrack, I was like, holy shit, Quincy Jones also did the country songs. And um, the lyricists for these were Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who are like two of the most prolific long-running movie songwriters in history. One of them passed away this year. The other one is still alive, nearly a hundred years old. They've done like a million movies. But when you watch this film, or if you even just look up the score... There's one song that's called like Foul Owl on the Prowl. <laughs> and there's another song that's just like a guy being like ba-doop, 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 ba-doop. and you see like the police officer going like ba-doop, 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 in the car. And like they are just they're so real, but they're so shit. <laughs> and they're like perfect, like plausible parody songs where Quincy Jones, I think, presumably was just like, this is a very fun job. And then Alan and Marilyn were also like, this is hilarious, because you need to be a legitimate songwriter to write a bad but also pitch perfect song of this type. And they work so well in the movie and I was just like, ah, oh, love it. Should have got his Oscar nom for this one. <laughs> um, yeah. Listeners can't see me because this is not a visual medium, but I was cracking up during the entirety of your little <laughs> monologue there. I did not know that and that is so great because i was googling like foul owl the pro like this sounds terrible i bet it's like a one-hit wonder and it's like no it's quincy it's still quincy <laughs> oh my god that is amazing yeah the music in this movie is amazing that opening theme song is so great oftentimes the like main line will just like pop into my head mm. just like randomly i also wanted to mention before we finish we have not talked about lee grant at all and i did want to just mention that she's in the movie because she's really good and um, it was really notable that she was in it. She plays the wife of the guy who gets killed. And so she's in charge of this big industrial project. So she's an important person. And she's the one who wants Poitiers to stay 
on the case because she rapidly figures out that he is the only competent person involved, which I really, again, I think the writing handles this really well because she is from outside of this town, so she presumably has a slightly more cosmopolitan approach to life, but it's less that she's, like, not a racist and more that she's smart and, again, is like, clearly you are the only person who has half a brain involved in this. So, like, I would like you to solve this. But um, she only has a couple scenes. I just think she's really excellent in the film. And her casting was notable because she had been blacklisted 15 years earlier. And she had made, like, one film in the interim and had done a lot of television. She just won an Emmy for Peyton Place shortly before this. But um, she basically, I mean, she hadn't worked in film because she was blacklisted. And Norman Jewison was a strident lefty and was like, I'm getting you back in here. And her husband had just died. So she was like, this is the perfect role for me to play. And I think just like brought it all to that. And then she went on to become a director and documentarian and she's in Mulholland Drive. So she had, she she really came back after the blacklist, which a lot of people did not manage to do. So well yeah. done her. And she's still alive. Like a surprising number of people involved in this film. I know. And loved working with Poitier, obviously, as basically everyone did. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about this? Rod Steiger won the Best Actor Oscar. Poitier was not nominated, which... Yeah. Great performance from Rod, but yeah, very, very sus situation there. (laughs) I mean... Mark Harris very kind of like tersely says that the explanation in the press was that he had three big movies in the year so there probably was some vote splitting which like I think probably there was but like that is not a sole explanation for what's going on here right oh the other thing to say about the Oscars to just close up is um Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th of 68 and the Oscars were scheduled for April 8th And at first, the Academy was just like, we'll say nothing and just continue on. Truly nothing has changed. Yep. Oh, absolutely. The biggest thing you get from reading this book is that like- The Academy's personality has just like calcified. (laughs) It's never changed. When all of the like outrage about things getting snubbed and like bullshit getting nominated. I mean, it's just all the same forever. So anyway, people start being like, I'm not going. Like first the sort of black actors say they're not going and then a bunch of like Mike Nichols also was like I'm absolutely not I mean like basically everybody with half a brain is like I'm not going to this thing so then the academy which Gregory Peck is the president of at this time is like we are going to push it back by two days (laughs) Jesus Christ Sammy Davis Jr. is like oh what a wonderful gesture I'll be happy to attend which, based on the most recent series of You Must Remember This About Him, seems right. Like, uh, yeah. Meanwhile, I think it was like, I think it was Poitier was like, really? Like, okay. But they have a ceremony, everybody goes, and everyone, I think, kind of thought The Graduate was going to win, and then it became, or Bonnie and Clyde was going to win, and it became clear as the night went on that In the Heat of the Night was, was going to win because it kept winning lots of awards. And, um... There are quotes right at the end of the book from Norman Jewison and Sidney Siliphant about this, which were shockingly self-aware, I felt, where they're both just like, yeah, it's because it's about racism. Because, <laughs> like, again, 67 and 68 are like the peak of the civil rights movement, right? And there are a bunch of riots in the summer of 67. Poitiers on 
doing press for the movie and like is only getting asked about what he feels about the riots and he's driving him crazy. So Norman Jewison says, I think it had a lot to do with timing. I really think that The Graduate is a brilliant film and Bonnie and Clyde is a brilliant film. We happened to arrive at a moment when people felt strongly about race. And Siliphant won for adapted screenplay and clearly is like, feels uncomfortable about it. And he lists off the things that like he's proud of about that screenplay. And I think, again, although there are flaws that we've discussed, I think a lot of the writing in that screenplay is really good. And he clearly is proud of it. But he's is like, well, that's not why we won. We won for its black-white content. Giving plaudits for In the Heat of the Night was like waving the American flag or pushing mom's apple pie. It was just too damn easy to manipulate people with issues which for the moment had flagged their attention. Which again is like plus ça change, right? Like, you just... Around and around we go. The plus, obviously, is that this actually is a good movie. It seems like it was a situation where no one was, like, unhappy that it was winning stuff. It was just that it wasn't, like, the most bold choice that could have been made. But um, you don't normally get people winning awards and being like, yeah, this is probably because it was about race, though. Like, I thought that was interesting. But it goes on the list of actually high-quality Best Picture winners that stand the test of time, which is very frequently not the case. Correct. Yeah, not an embarrassing winner at all. Mike Nichols won directing for The Graduate, which I think is like a really good balance. Reading this book made me desperate to rewatch that movie. I mean, what a great topic for a book. It's just like, here's this one year where the Best Picture nominees were incredible, and he's right. And the production stories for all of them were amazing. I mean, I guess you could probably do that for any movie, and like there would be some wild shit, but... Slap bang in the middle of a period of political and cultural and artistic turmoil. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, even if you... Like, for our listeners, if you're still listening, even if you don't know very much about this stuff, I just cannot recommend this book highly enough. He's a... Because he started off doing, like, magazine stuff, it's completely thoroughly researched and very sophisticated but it's real like i read read it in a week and it's 400 yeah i mean i read his book about world war ii film directors five came back and it's one of the best non-fiction books i've read and i read quite a lot of non-fiction books yeah he just explains everything really clearly and like even if you don't again know very much about this stuff like you would not have trouble all of the stories are totally fascinating in their own kind of separate way so yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes um, and do a couple other articles. But um, if you haven't seen this movie, you should definitely watch it. It's great. It's on HBO Max in the US right now, so very easily accessible. So next week, we are going to do uh, a listener request. We are going to be watching one of my favorite ever films, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. So I am excited to be talking about this film. It's like three hours long. I bought a Blu-ray for this specific purpose. (laughs) Wow, I did not realize it was this long. Yep. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Get ready. This was a classic case of like, this director was fighting with the studio for years because he wouldn't cut stuff. And we'll get into it next week. But um, this is obviously about Jesse James, famous American West outlaw who got murdered by a guy named Robert Ford, as the title of this film suggests. So lots to talk about in terms of background, as I've already hinted, and then neo-westerns, just a fun topic, and then just like the craft of this film is beyond belief. Um, Roger Deakins' best shot film, in my opinion. that is high praise. Yeah, and we just did a Deakins, so we're coming up with another one. 
So yeah, I'm I'm really excited about that. So you can listen to that next week. If you would like to listen to a bonus episode where we answered listener questions, you can find that on our Patreon. That was really fun. That is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We would also greatly appreciate a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps out with visibility. And Gabia, where can listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work in the Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.